The We're LCC podcast is a monthly show that comes out on the 9th of every month. But if you hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast app, you'll never need to remember that because the show will automatically be there. So go ahead and hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast app now. We are LCC, a podcast emanating from the halls of Lower Canada College on Royal Avenue in Montreal. Here's alumni officer Christine Jones. Welcome to the We Are LCC podcast. I'm Christine Jones, your host, alum, parent, and the school's alumni officer. Today, we have Lise Hupler and Sarah Kingsley, both learning specialists and coordinators in our LEAD, Learning Enrichment and Development Center at LCC. What was once a small and isolated program has grown and evolved over the years to become an integrated and far-reaching part of the school and its culture at large. We're so happy to have both Lise and Sarah join us today for an important discussion on neurodiversity in education. Hi, Sarah and Lise. I wanted to thank you so much for being with us today for the We Are LCC podcast to really delve into a conversation about neurodiversity. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I'd love to just start our conversation by asking you a little bit about your background and your own and your own education. I started teaching at LCC in 2007, and I actually started as a as a class classroom teacher. I started in grade one, um, teaching grade one, and then eventually moved up to teaching grade four and was very fortunate to complete my, my master's degree at Concordia with Lees. Um, we were actually in the, in the same program and, and sort of went through that journey and that experience together. And more recently, I have completed my Orton-Gillingham certification as well, which is an approach for, for teaching uh, individuals with dyslexia. Oh, amazing. It's apparently a rare one that not a lot of people have that accreditation. Not yet. No, I think, I think it's growing, but yes. No, not yeah. Yet. And Lise, what about you? So I started at LCC right out of uh, university in 2008, a year after Sarah. And I went, uh, even though I had originally trained to be an elementary school teacher, I had in my last stage, which was at LCC um, in the spring of 2008, I had actually asked Judy Schenker, who was the the founder of the lead department, if I could shadow her. And because I I did always had the interest I wanted to, I had in my mind that I was going to be a classroom teacher originally, and then move eventually into more specialized and learning specialist position. But I had asked and I had just kind of fallen in love with it right from the start. I was very curious about the students who had difficulty and I really wanted to, to work with them. There was a really tangible pull towards it right from the start. And so I'm now in my 13th year in the lead department. I actually went up with my students because the lead department was originally only offered in the junior school. And I just really just went up with them into, into the middle. You're like, if, if I'm going, if I'm getting a year older, you're all coming with me. We're just going to do it together. <laughs> I let them go. So yeah. It's, uh, you know, I have had students that I've worked with for, you know, six, seven, eight, nine years and moved into the high school. And then we we developed the lead program into the middle senior and pre-U school, which is what I'm currently coordinating. And uh, Sarah's coordinating the junior school. Okay. And so for those who might not know, LEAD um, stands for Learning, Enrichment and Development. I guess just to ask you both briefly, why did you choose education to begin with? And I know, Lise, you touched a bit upon after why you decided to go into becoming a learning specialist, but 
anything that you could add there? I think when you go into education, hopefully there's a there's a passion there for working with students, working with children and individuals and teaching and watching them grow and learn. And it's, it's really an incredible uh, profession in many ways to be a part of. My journey was, was different from, from Lise's. However, I, I also was able to benefit from the mentorship of, of Judy Shanker. Uh, we worked quite closely in my early years when I was teaching grade one. And then my journey bringing me into LEAD was actually quite interesting because through Judy Shankar in grade one, I had really focused on reading. I was really passionate about teaching students how to read and really trying to help them crack the code. And the ones that didn't really, you know, it, it sort of piques my interest. And I just had this, I, I would say, deep desire to, to help them, to help them get there, to, to understand the love of what, what school can be. And, and so when Judy retired uh, and the position opened up, I knew that this was sort of where my journey was taking me and to be able to, to partner and collaborate with, with Lee's and share a, a very similar vision, I think, of how we see the program was, was just such a, an awesome opportunity. I love that you said um, that you wanted to have the students, the ones that were, let's say, struggling, but you still wanted them to have the same love of what school could be. You know, it's so true because school can be so amazing. Well, for some or most, but so difficult for others. Yeah. And I think that does reflect our philosophy and lead in general is we want our students to be capable learners and, and to excel to their full potential. But I think that, uh, you know, in order to get there. And, and more importantly, what we value more is, is how they feel as a learner. That's what makes the real difference between success is, is how capable they feel to learn and how comfortable they feel to learn. Absolutely. In our world, most people are considered neurotypical, meaning that the brain would function and process information in the way that society would expect it to. So can you tell us what would be considered neurodivergent? Yeah. So when we, when we think about neurodivergence, it's really, it's a term that's used to describe uh, someone's brain that, that processes, learns, responds um, differently than what's considered sort of quote unquote typical or standard. When we think about neurodiversity, we understand it as sort of the concept that differences in brain development are normal and should not be stigmatized. So really shifting away from, I think, what has traditionally been a, a deficit model, which we'll speak to a little bit later, or um, where it was characterized more as a, a deficit or disorder, this shift towards neurodiversity is, is reframing the language around that. And so can you provide some examples or talk about what types of neurodiversity there are? So the term itself was originally coined by Judy Singer, who was autistic and also an advocate for understanding of autism. And it was originally used more in, in the context of autism, but now it's used as more of a, an umbrella term for really any neurological differences that impact both learning and behavior. Some examples include uh, dyslexia, ADHD, autism, of course, Tourette's, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, and um, it, it actually also includes chronic mental health issues such as OCD, anxiety, depression. So it really covers a wide range of not only traditionally academic issues, but also, you know, considering the other things that would sort of disrupt, um, disrupt so people's mental health and whatnot. Yeah. On a day-to-day -day basis, that's right. 
Okay. Um, so what key principle then should guide us to try to understand neurodiversity? So um, Lise and I have drawn from the works of Thomas Armstrong, who is, you know, a lead researcher in this field. So really we'll be pulling from, from his ideas. But uh, one of the main tenets is, is understanding the brain uh, more as an ecosystem rather than a machine. So, you know, typically a metaphor that's often used, it compares the brain to a computer, you know, sort of that hardware idea. But really, Thomas Armstrong argues that, that our brain is much more like an ecosystem. So it, it responds to its environment. And that's how we should sort of reflect, I think, the, the discourse around neurodiversity um, and our understanding of the brain. Yeah, exactly. And I think that another point to consider when you're thinking about neurodiversity and understanding neurodiversity, not just within an individual, but within the, the context of society, is that all human brains um, exist along a continuum of different competencies. So all traits, all qualities, all competencies, they exist on a continuum for every individual and we're all at different spectrums. And what's happening in our society is that we happen to value some specific competencies more than others. So reading, writing, being able to sit in your chair and and pay attention to classroom lectures for, for hours on end. Those are the, the kind of academic expectations of our society. So in order to be quote unquote valued as a student, you have to be good at those competencies. And so students who struggle with those competencies experience difficulty in school because that's what we've decided to value as the most important. But should school success be defined by other competencies such as musical ability or athletics? Um, it would be the, the, the struggle, the group of struggling students would switch to another group of students. So a lot of it really comes back to being compared to society. And so then how do you think our definitions and cultures defining the competencies would affect those experiencing the challenges? And for example, could you talk about the shift to other groups that might experience the challenges if this were different? Yeah, I think it's important to understand that competency, because it's based on the continuum of, of competence that society values in this moment, it's culture-based. And because it's culture-based, the way that you're valued is entirely based by where and when you're born. So, you know, for example, if we look at the timeline of human existence several, several millennia ago in, in most cultures, your ability to, to sit in class and listen to a lecture was not valued at all. It didn't matter how good you were at that. Something that was far more important was your ability to hunt um, and to gather. And so some students, for example, uh, some of our students who have ADHD, this is what they would excel at is being able to pay attention to a hundred things at the same time and have that constant vigilance and being able to act fast. What we call impulsivity in a classroom in those times of hunter and gatherer, they would actually be excelling. They would be the most valued members of the community. It's important to keep that in mind because, you know, when we're, we're talking to students about the way that they're feeling and their self esteem, it's, it's important to tie that in so that they understand that it's really just because we happen to have this very strange set of competencies that we value in this society specifically, and that it's not a reflection of, of their, quote unquote, again, uh, disability or deficit as a human being. I, I'm going to go off our question for a bit, but it just made me think it's so amazing to know this. And so the students, and obviously from my personal experience with one of one of my kids having ADHD and a few learning dif difficulties, 
it's so important for those kids to know that they can excel and they can fit in and they can, you know, be just as successful as all the other ones. But I wonder, are, are there also things being done to educate the neurotypical people in our world about the neurodivergence so that they're more understanding and acceptable or accepting rather? You know, that's been at the forefront of our our goal this year is to bring that that knowledge and, and build understanding um, within our school community. So not just for our neurodivergent learners, but actually for all of our learners, for our neurotypical learners as well. I think um, though we can't you know, fully comprehend what what it is in that experience of being neurodiverse and the challenges that an individual would face um, mm-hmm. and the journey that, that that entails, both for the individual and the family. What we can do is we can increase empathy and understanding around that. And that comes full circle to, to building knowledge. And and for, for us this year, that that really started with this term and the language and 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 changing the language around learning differences. Right. And just to be more inclusive and all that, you know, I'll flip back to where we were. um, And just to continue on and ask you if you can speak to then the shift in the paradigm, where we used to focus on what one was unable to do and the concept that, you know, like you said, quote unquote, learning disabilities are societal and we compare the individual to the to what the norm is. I think we're starting to, as we increase our understanding of neurodiversity, we're starting to to rethink and reshape what that means in terms of of education. Um, That rather the problem, you know, being with the individual as it was once perceived, uh, we need to reflect on the structure and the the sort of infrastructure that, that we've created within our educational system. And I think that goes back to what I was speaking to earlier about the the discourse and the language around what was traditionally called learning disabilities. That whole disability discourse, disorder, it was really um, language that focused on a deficit model, on what the individual could not do compared to the norm. And so as we embrace this term neurodiversity, we can actually start to explore what these neurodiversities uh, bring, what are their strengths? Lise just provided a great example with, with you know, an individual with ADHD. So what, what are their strengths and how can we tap into those strengths and leverage those strengths to, to sort of move beyond traditional areas that might be perceived as weaknesses in the classroom? And so then making that important distinction and I guess acknowledgement that neurodivergent brains are different, not inferior, what does that mean for education and moving forward? I think it means everything. I think it means a lot. Although it will take time to bring theory into practice, it's really about us finding ways to optimize the the environments for our neurodiverse learners. It means that we need to start exploring alternative um, modalities of instruction and assessment. Uh, we need to uh, move beyond traditional measures and 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 really move into a more creative and exploratory phase. And we also need to build agency in our neurodiverse students so that they can themselves um, advocate for for their needs and their strengths. So then what power then does the does one's environment have on the impact of the neurodiverse students? I think everything, or we think everything 
children and, and teens will really only learn and build skills and more importantly, their self-esteem in an environment that fits their learning profile. So our goal as educators and parents then is to make sure that we provide them with an environment in which they can learn and in which they feel that they can take risks and feel good about taking those risks and making sure that they're developing self-advocacy skills and self-esteem and just being feeling able and capable. I think that that's what a proper environment can can offer them. Not a proper environment, but an open environment that is inclusive of multiple different ways of learning. And so, for example, if we're working with a student with dyslexia, um, we're not going to give the student with dyslexia books and manuals to learn from because we're not going to get anywhere. They're not going to learn. They're not going to feel good about themselves learning. They're going to end up hating school. And this is what we want to avoid. They're going to think that they're bad learners. If we were to give the student with dyslexia a learning opportunity to listen by audiobooks, using text-to-speech, electronic readers, documentaries, podcasts, there's so much out there now that we can offer them, you know, in terms of a modality that works for them, then the benefit becomes that they learn and they can show us that they've learned in the way that they can express themselves. And more importantly, we've empowered them as a learner so that they can they can feel that they are able to learn just as well as everybody else, just maybe slightly differently. Okay. And I know you've both spoken before about positive niche construction. So I'm wondering if you can explain that to us, um, define it and maybe explain the concept of what it is and then speak to the example of a round peg into a square hole and and what maybe the options there are for people. So the idea around positive niche construction is really looking at the environment and shaping the environment to meet the needs of the individual. It can be twofold, the the individual adapting to the environment, but it's it's about now using reshaping the environment and using that as a way to access student strengths and leverage student strengths. So, you know, Thomas Armstrong was the one who who used a really powerful example to elicit this of, you know, a person, let's say, who's the round peg trying to fit into the square hole. So what, what can they do? You know, they can either shave off enough of their wood to sort of squeeze into the square hole, which is, I think, traditionally what we've expected from students who are neurodiverse, fit into this environment change what you need to change to fit into this environment. But what Thomas Armstrong is suggesting is that we can also round off some of those edges of the square hole so that the, so the round peg can stay round and still fit. And so that's the whole idea of niche construction is, is a changing the environment, adapting the environment to fit the individual learner. I think that, that individuals with neurodiverse brains can create special niches for themselves um, where they can flourish. And part of that goes back, back to what Lise was saying about understanding uh, strengths, finding the modalities that, that leverage those strengths and gives those individuals access to learning. And I can imagine that, you know, for students, once they understand that concept of not having to be the square peg fitting into the round hole and that, you know, we can work on shaving off some of that extra wood and fitting in, it would really alleviate a lot of the stress and pressure that they, I'm sure, have been under. And and then when you think about it, too, it, it goes, I guess it's not just kids and students in education. I mean, as a society, there's so many more areas. So if we move away from education for a bit and now look at, let's say, how human resource departments and companies could also look at ways to be accommodating to these individuals, what do you think that would mean for the future in, in those groups? 
given that neurodiversity is becoming more and more popular and well-known and better understood, I think that there has been some positive movement in terms of how companies are responding to the needs of individuals. Um, it's, it's great. We've seen a lot of uh, promising progress. Um, recently, Harvard Business Review and Forbes published articles about how neurodiversity can be a competitive advantage, speaking to the untapped potential of individuals who have neurodiversity, but who may not fit in your typical in working environment, um, but that slight modifications or accommodations can really make a, a positive difference on, you know, the bottom line. And um, I think that if the companies change certain processes in terms of their HR, and in terms of how they build and construct the environment and allow for flexibility within those environments. And I think it's proof that given a flourishing environment, neurodiverse individuals can succeed not only in school, but also in their career. And, uh, you know, we're, we're hoping to see companies become increasingly accommodating. And so then kind of to what we were talking a little bit about before, um, you know, increasing awareness and whatnot, how then can we reframe differences that were once considered disabilities or disorders, promote awareness of this unique population, and then improve the lives of the neurodivergent and high ability people? Well, we we believe that it starts with education. So building knowledge and understanding around what it means to be neurodiverse. You know, as I mentioned before, we can't fully understand what what the experience is to be neurodiverse, but we can sort of build empathy around it and 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 with that understanding um, build strength in community. Lise and I have actually uh, offered a recorded presentation uh, on through the mailbag on neurodiversity. We've also had an opportunity to speak to to the board. Uh, we've had tremendous administrative support, so we've been able to take different opportunities to bring this message to all of our students. We've had uh, guest speakers who are neurodiverse speak to our student body about uh, their experiences to, to share that and, and connect with students, uh, including actually some lead alumni. And so even in the junior school, we've had in our, our weekly assemblies, um, little capsules on different neurodiversities. What does it mean to be um, ADHD or what is autism, dyslexia? Uh, really just, again, I think increasing knowledge and understanding around, around it for all of our students. Right. And so then what tips would you give educators um, and parents to help better understand the neurodiverse brain, help them develop the skills to parent or mentor more confidently and get better outcomes to address the challenges that they're faced with? I think that the number one tip we would give to both parents and educators is to just get educated as much as possible. Follow your curiosity. Every time you have a student or when your child is doing something that you don't understand or you're, you know, maybe frustrated by, uh, look into it. You know, there's parent support communities. There's so many podcasts and books and, and experts out there that can offer so much knowledge and information for you to be able to, to understand it better. Cause I think it really comes comes from an understanding and the more educated you are, the more you're able to respond and provide that fitting environment that we've been speaking about. And 
a part also that I would say, especially me working with teens, is that the teenagers have so much to offer in terms of insight. And, you know, yes, teenagers can be monosyllabic and sometimes there's not much coming out, but if you catch them in the right moment or you're able to to sort of foster those conversations in which they talk about it. And it's really important in those moments to be non-judgmental because it's it's hard. And no matter how educated you are, you want to understand, ultimately, they're the ones who are living through the daily challenge. And they have a lot to be able to to give you in terms of what's working, what's not working, how they feel about it, where their self-esteem is. So I'd say listening would be a, another tip that I we both find extremely important. Mm-hmm. I think to add to that too, this is, I guess, for both educators and and parents, but that it that it's a journey that we can't expect immediacy in finding, you know, exactly what's going to work at this moment. It, it's, it's constantly, I think as individuals and human beings, we're, we're constantly evolving. Uh, needs shift and change. Teachers need time to explore strategies, get creative, try things, shelf what doesn't work, try something new. Um, and, and same for parents too. It is a journey and, it, and it's part of that process of, of trial and error a little bit of finding what works and, and what resonates. Keeping that in mind to you know, provide some of that, that patience throughout, throughout the process. Patience is definitely a good keyword for it. <laughs> but I mean, these students and just, you know, students or, or kids and teens now are, are certainly fortunate to have educators like you working with them because it will it will definitely make a difference in the future. That's for sure. Well, it's been a pleasure talking about it this today. I'm so grateful that you took the time to be with us. And I wanted to thank you again. Thank you thank so much you. for for having us. I think, yeah, any opportunity we we are, we are <laughs> so excited. <laughs> it's great. It's great. Thanks for listening to We Are LCC. For more, go to lcc.ca/podcast, and remember to hit subscribe or follow on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. I'm Matt Cundell, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.